we've been speaking about the 12 links of dependent arising. And uh, we've seen that it is an explanation of how uh, rebirth works, uh, specifically uncontrollably recurring rebirth, which is what samsara is uh, all about. And we've seen that uh, that uh, whole rebirth cycle is driven by our unawareness of how we and others exist. This is uh, the general assertion in both uh, the uh, Theravada tradition and the other Hinayana traditions and uh, Mahayana. This is what is asserted in common. If we uh, go deeper into uh, the uh, analysis of uh, how rebirth works, then uh, we uh, find that uh, in Mahayana it's uh, referring to our unawareness of not only how we exist, but uh, how everything exists. And there are many different levels. You know, when we talk about uh, unawareness of how things exist, it means that uh, our projections of... uh, uh, how we imagine things exist don't correspond to reality, and these. Uh, so that's what voidness or emptiness is uh, referring to: the absence of any uh, findable referent thing that corresponds to what we imagine, what we project. Because of that uh, unawareness then uh, we have all sorts of uh, disturbing emotions because we feel insecure. We don't know how we exist. We imagine we exist in some impossible way. And uh, there are more and more subtle, impossible ways that we project. But uh, because we have these disturbing emotions based on uh, insecurity and uh, unawareness, confusion, then uh, we, uh, that triggers our, uh, these compelling impulses, which is what karma is referring to, which then draw us into uh, acting, speaking, or uh, thinking in some sort of uh, disturbed way. Either it's a destructive way when it's under the influence of disturbing emotions, or it uh, can also be a constructive way when it is under the influence of disturbing attitudes, like I have to be perfect or uh, I have to correct everybody, that uh, those disturbing attitudes are there as well with the disturbing emotions, but the disturbing emotions are on top of that. So I'm always right, and then we get angry with anybody else who disagrees with us. Then we saw that uh, when we uh, uh, enact these uh, compelling impulses to speak, act, or think in a certain way, that that leaves karmic aftermath. And this uh, aftermath will be uh, uh, potentials and tendencies, for instance, to repeat 
that type of behavior or to meet with uh, circumstances that are similar to things happening to us like we did to others and uh, also um, what's relevant uh, here is that uh, it will um, bring about a rebirth, a life form that uh, will support that uh, continuing type of behavior and meeting those, cir those circumstances and that will be in an environment and with uh, things around us that will also uh, help to repeat these type of uh, actions. And in addition, it, uh, uh, from destructive behavior, it ripens into our experience of uh, unhappiness. And from constructive behavior, which is uh, driven by disturbing attitudes, then it brings about happiness, like, you know, we're happy that we corrected somebody, or that we cleaned the house, but that happiness never lasts. And it's never good enough unless we have to clean again. So that's the uh, so-called suffering of change, which is uh, our ordinary happiness, never satisfies, never lasts, uh, completely uncertain, uh, anything about it. So we saw that uh, uh, the next set of links describes uh, how the uh, fetus develops in uh, a next lifetime so that uh, we have uh, the full um, mechanism, mechanism is maybe not the word, so that we have the full configuration to be able to experience the uh, results of, our, of this karmic aftermath. So in the fetus we have uh, uh, first just uh, the uh, consciousness comes in, uh, comes in is not a very good way of describing it, but anyway, the consciousness takes birth and conception, and uh, it uh, uh, then connected with uh, the uh, sperm and egg, so we have nameable mental fac faculties with or without form, and uh, then starts to divide, so then we get uh, the various types of sense consciousness, uh, mental consciousness, so that's supported on the physical level with uh, uh, sensory cells and so on that uh, will be able to perceive objects like sights or sounds and so on and uh, able to distinguish things uh, within the sense field. And then there's a experience of contacting awareness of uh, when there's a uh, um, experiencing a specific object, is it, is it a pleasant or unpleasant or neutral experience? And then happiness or unhappiness as a response to uh, that pleasant or unpleasant contacting awareness. So now we have the full mechanism of uh, uh, the rebirth the full configuration with all the aggregates uh, that are there and now functioning. Then the links uh, go on to describe uh, how that uh, karmic aftermath is actually activated. And we saw that uh, it's activated in response to 
the feelings of happiness or unhappiness or neutral if we are deeply absorbed in some super uh, state of concentration. Uh, it's how we respond to that happiness, unhappiness, or uh, that neutral feeling. And we uh, first are focused on that uh, feeling, and we have thirst or craving that if it's happiness, uh, that, we don't, that we're thirsting for it not to go away. If it is uh, uh, unhappiness, we're thirsting for it to go away. And if it's neutral, we're thirsting for it not to decline. And then we get the next link, which is an obtainer emotion or attitude, disturbing one. So either we are aimed, or it could be a combination of these, we are aimed at now the object with which we uh, feel that uh, happiness, unhappiness, or so on. And we have desire for it. Uh, if we think a little bit more deeply, it could also be if it's the object that uh, we experience with unhappiness. It's not necessarily the desire to um, have it, but uh, to get rid of it. So anger comes uh, together with that. Uh, in both cases of that thirsting and that uh, um, obtainer desire, what uh, we're doing is exaggerating the positive qualities or the negative qualities of something. That's why the attitude of nothing special is very important in the sense that we don't exaggerate. You know, this is the most wonderful thing in the world or this is the most horrible thing in the world. It is what it is and it's impermanent. It will change. Uh, it's arisen from causes and conditions. And uh, as the causes and conditions change, it will change because it's an affecting, an affected phenomenon, a conditioned phenomenon, conditioned by causes and conditions. Uh, then uh, not only could we have this uh, disturbing emotion toward the feeling and toward the object, but uh, also we could uh, have a uh, disturbed attitude about me who is experiencing this. And uh, the one that is uh, most significant is uh, the one which is uh, called a disturbing um, outlook toward a transitory network. Transitory network is referring to the aggregates. They're a network of many different uh, factors, and it's transitory in the sense that it changes moment to moment, and all of the factors change at a different rate all the time. So while we're looking at something, our emotions, you know, we're feeling a certain level of happiness. The happiness or unhappiness is changing in intensity, and uh, uh, our emotions about it will change. The amount of concentration that we have on it will change. How much attention we pay to it will change. All these things will change all the time. And uh, what uh, is uh, happening with this disturbing, uh, disturbed outlook toward these aggregates is that uh, we identify with uh, one or more of them. 
and then we hold on to it and uh, um, it's described in terms of throwing out the net of me or mine onto it this is me, I'm a miserable person so we identify with the unhappiness this is uh, uh, my um, uh, friend and so uh, then we cling on to you know, this idea of uh, this person being mine and the happiness that we feel with being with that person. So we have uh, many, many possibilities here. And all of these uh, disturbing emotions and uh, attitudes that we have uh, specifically in the context of the 12 links are describing how a cluster of throwing karma and completing karma uh, is going to be activated at the time of death so that uh, then it uh, throws the uh, consciousness is the term that's, uh, called, that's used, throwing karma, that uh, it activates this throwing karma that uh, is uh, going to lead to next rebirth with, again, the whole syndrome repeating and repeating, and that's summarized by the last two links, the uh, conception and uh, aging and dying. So we had the 12 links. We uh, also saw that uh, we can uh, break this cycle by getting rid of the ignorance, the unawareness, so that uh, we don't build up more uh, karmic potentials and tendencies and so on that will generate more rebirth, uncontrollably recurring. But uh, as a uh, first step, what we can do is to manage or try to manage the way that we deal with our feelings of happiness and unhappiness because that's what uh, is going to start the whole process of triggering uh, the karmic potentials. And this is applicable not just in, uh, at the time of death, but also applicable uh, at any time at all. And we saw that uh, the attitude of nothing special is uh, just a colloquial way of referring to not exaggerating, not uh, uh, making a big deal out of the positive, so-called positive qualities of happiness or the object of our uh, happiness that really brings us happiness, and uh, not to uh, exaggerate the negative qualities of unhappiness or that object that uh, we don't like, that we experience in an unpleasant type of way. And it also tied together with the eight worldly dharmas, the so-called transitory things in life that, uh, uh, again, overreacting to by exaggerating the good or bad qualities of hearing good news, hearing bad news, praise, criticism, uh, etc. That has to do with this uh, obtainer desire. Today, what uh, I'd like to speak about then is that uh, uh, 
deeper uh, opponent that uh, we need to apply in order to uh, stop creating more uh, continuation of the 12 links. And that means to get rid of our ignorance or our unawareness of how we and everybody exists. Unawareness, you look at uh, the definition, it means not knowing. This is how it's described in the uh, Abhidharma texts. If we look at uh, the Madhyamaka text, Chandrakirti, he uh, describes it as knowing in an inverted way, an opposite way. So there are two ways of uh, explaining it, that either we don't know how we and others exist, or we imagine that we and others exist in a way which is completely uh, inverted, the opposite of uh, how we actually do exist. So what we need to uh, understand is uh, voidness. I make a difference between uh, emptiness and uh, voidness. Um, emptiness, if you th- at least in English, in many other languages, you don't have two terms, so it's not a problem. But uh, in English, I should uh, just point out to you that uh, empty implies there's a glass that's there and it, it, there's nothing inside it. So you empty the glass, but you're still left with uh, glass. So that's one of the tenant systems, but that's not the deepest tenant system. It's not refer- that's, that's empty. Void means no such thing. So we're not talking about um, something missing from something findable. You know that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, rather. Uh, with voidness, we're saying that uh, there's, it's the uh, Sanskrit word for zero. So it doesn't mean that there's nothing, but it just means that what, I mean, in a sense, it, it's, uh, see, this is what's confusing. It's a sense, it's nothing, because it's referring to, it's talking about what corresponds to our fantasy. So there's nothing that corresponds to our fantasy. That doesn't mean that nothing exists. So when we talk about the uh, self, what is the self? There is the uh, conventional self that does uh, function, participates in... uh, cause and effect. So in a sense, it conventionally exists. One has to be a little bit careful about using this word exist, but uh, at least what uh, we can uh, definitely say is that uh, there is dependent arising, that uh, we do something, we experience the results of it. So uh, there is that uh, conventional self. 
but uh, it doesn't exist as uh, something external that flies into the sperm and egg and uh, somehow activates it and then is uh, occupying the body and mind like uh, that's its uh, house and uses you know, the body-mind like a machine or a tool and is the master over it. Uh, that type of uh, self doesn't exist at all. So how does it actually exist? And this gets into this uh, topic of uh, imputation. It is an imputation on the aggregates. Aggregates are changing all the time. Remember, uh, there's uh, some type of consciousness, some type of object of the consciousness. There's uh, some kind of distinguishing within the uh, field that that consciousness is uh, aware of and uh, uh, experiencing what it distinguishes with uh, some feeling of happiness or unhappiness and then all the emotions positive, negative, all the uh, so-called mechanical uh, mental factors like attention, interest, uh, concentration, uh, etc. All these things, the aggregates, changing every moment, and all of them uh, coming from their own causes, their own potentials, and changing at a different rate from each other. So it's really very, very complex, isn't it, what uh, we experience. And the self is an imputation, exists as an imputation uh, on these changing aggregates as its basis. So first, we need to understand that uh, it's not that somebody is imputing it. It is an imputation. That is what it is, the type of phenomenon that it is. And I uh, think that uh, if we use an analogy of the self, it'll be a little bit uh, clearer what type of phenomenon uh, we are speaking about here. And the analogy that uh, we'll use is a football game. What is a football game? Well, there are, <laughs> there are all the minutes and moments of the play, and there are all these different players, and everyone is doing something different in every moment. Right? So what's the football game? Football game is an imputation on all of that play, on all of those different things that are happening in each moment of all the different players. Is the game any one moment? Is the game any one player? No. Is there a game separate from all that play? No. Is there a game, however? Were we watching the game? Yes. 
Did somebody win the game? Yes. That's an example of an imputation. The game is not something that is non-existent, is it? But we can't pinpoint where's the game, can we? So think about that analogy. Why don't we think about it for a minute and then have a question, all right? Okay, you had a question. Somebody have a microphone? I am very sorry. Um, obviously, um, I am a little hard of hearing, and I am a little slow today, and uh, I simply didn't understand. Could I ask you to try once more to explain, please? Yes, happily. But you need to nod whether you hear me or not, so that I know that, I'm, that uh, you're hearing. The analogy of an imputation is a football game. So the football game is an imputation on the basis of all the moments during which all the players are running around and doing something. So in each moment, something different is happening. And in each moment, 
each player is doing something different. The game is an imputation on all of that. Is there a game? Yes. Are we watching the game? Yes. Is the game any one moment? No. Is the game any one player? No. Does the, play, does the game exist totally separately from everything that happens on the field? No. But is there a game? Yes. That's the, so the game, the type of phenomenon that the game is, is an imputation. And all the moments of the game and all the players, what they're doing, is the basis for the imputation. It's based on all of that, that there is a game. So the game is dependent on all these parts, all the players and each moment of the play. Doesn't exist separately from it, and it doesn't exist, you can't find it inside any of the activity, but nevertheless, it, there is a game. That's the analogy of the self and the aggregates. The aggregates are like the play. So each of the mental factors, all the emotions and the feelings and the consciousness, they're like all the players. And in every moment, they're doing something different. Some are working together, some are sitting on the side. The self is like the game. It's the imputation on all of that. Is there a self? Yes. Is the self any one of these you know, is it the mind? Is it my body? Is it my anger? Is it my feeling of happiness? Feeling of unhappiness? Remember, we threw out that net of me. I'm so miserable. I'm a miserable person. Well, that's identifying the game with that one player, the happiness. But not only that. Is there a me separate from all of this? No. But that's the analogy. But there is a me. That's an imputation. It's an imputed, imputedly existent phenomenon, literally. So this is not so easy to... Uh, understand the consequences of it. You can understand with the analogy of the game and the players. But then to transfer that to the self and the aggregates, not so easy. We have some resistance to that. But uh, this is, I think... Uh, uh, helpful way of understanding.
Uh, the microphone still isn't on. Um, I can almost manage that, but uh, the imputation still uh, escapes me. Well, imputation is just a word. There's no good word for this type of phenomenon in English or in our Western languages. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. There's no good word for it. But uh, what we need to realize that we're not talking about something which is imputed by, um, you know, a concept or, you know, anything like that. And all you have to do is stop imputing it and it's not there anymore. It's not that. That's something else. It's a fact. There are certain phenomenon that change from moment to moment. Some are forms of physical phenomenon. Some are ways of being aware of things. And some are these so-called imputations. There's a technical word for it, but uh, I don't want to confuse you. It's a terribly difficult technical term. But there's a static phenomenon, a non-static phenomenon that is neither of those two. And it's these imputations. say impute. They don't understand the word impute. Right. So that well, that's very good. <laughs> that's very good that you don't understand the word impute or imputation because then you don't have any association with it, wrong association with it. So I might as well say the Tibetan word. There's no difference. So that's good. The, <laughs> a word is only a word if it has a meaning. Otherwise, it's just a meaningless sound. So if you can understand the meaning, then it doesn't matter what you call it. It's only a convention. Every language is going to have a different word. Uh, Dakpa. Deminduchi, it's a deminduchi. Deminduchi is an affected variable, infected, affected variable, something that changes all the time. And denmin means that it doesn't share five things in common with the mental factors. And then it gets very technical and very common, very complicated. That's the technical term for it. So we don't need that because it'll just complicate things more. So you learn a new word, imputation. There are, but the word is not the important thing. What's important is to understand the type of phenomenon that we're talking about. And if we look at one of the tenant systems, the Sautrantika system, there it makes it very clear that we're talking about something which is objectively 
there. There is a game. There is a person. There are many other examples, like motion. There is motion. Motion, all that happens is one moment at a time. So now my finger is here, now my finger is there, now my finger is there. But this word imputation is there is motion. The motion doesn't occur in any one moment. The motion doesn't exist separately from each of these moments, but there's motion. There are many examples like that, if you think about it. So it's something objective that's not some form of physical phenomenon. It's not a way of knowing something like an emotion or consciousness, but it's objectively a fact and it changes from moment to moment. The game changes from moment to moment. I change from moment to moment. You change from moment to moment. But that me as an imputation is not something that flies in and, you know, takes possession of a sperm and an egg and presses the buttons and then, you know, now it has a, a new house that it lives in and controls. That's mine. But we imagine that it's like that and that it can be known separately from the aggregates. I know you. What do you know? I know what you look like. I know what your voice sounds like on the phone. What do I know? You can't just know you. Even if you just know your name, that's something. But obviously a person is not only their name. Yes. <laughs> Short comment on this uh, speaking of technicalities. This mic has a middle way. So if you put the button on in the middle, then it will mute and you don't turn the whole thing off. So if you turn it off, then you have to wait for it to to get to the receiver again. So please put it on mute on the middle. It's a Madiomica mic. <laughs> <laughs> And now I forgot my question. Huh? <laughs> no. So it's, um, I, I'm trying to understand this impute then. It's like, so there's a lot of things happening when you're talking about the game, a lot of things happening. Right. And then it's to impute, it's an, in a simple way what we make of it, what we name it. No. No. No, not at all. Okay. Uh, As I said, nobody is imputing it. It is just a fact that there is a game happening. So now, I have three different terms. 
which are all rendered in Tibetan by the same term. So this is why it's quite confusing. I differentiate it, uh, the three things that are included here with three different terms. Imputation, mental labeling, and designation. If you don't have these words in your language, that's, as I say, wonderful, because then you don't have any association, wrong associations with these words. Imputation is referring to what is objectively there. Nobody has to impute it. Nobody does impute it or project it. There is a person. There is a game that's happening. Everybody would agree. Now, there is the mental label is mentally labeling it with a concept, a category. I have the category of a game. And this particular event, I fit into that category. And I have certain ideas about what a game should be. Based on that, I call it a good game or a bad game, and so on. That's a concept, category. That's mentally labeled onto many, many individual games. The, game, the individual games are objectively happening. Concept of a game I mean think about it somebody had to make up the rules and and make up a game didn't they a football game that wasn't something natural that cave people did somebody made up this idea of a game a football game Right? And then we have this, game, this idea of, of what a football game is with all the rules, and that's a category. And every time that we watch all these people running around kicking a ball, it's a game that's happening, but we fit it into that concept of a game. That, that, so we recognize it as a game. That's mental labeling. Designation is giving a word for it. So we give a word to that category, football game, and different languages will give different names to it. And because we give that name, we designate that category with a name, then we designate each individual objective thing that is happening, the game that is happening, with that word. So the category and the word are optional. These come from the mind, conceptual. But there is conventionally a game. It's a convention. Everybody agrees that it's a game. And the game is actually happening. And it arises on the process of cause and effect of all the people running around and kicking a ball. And somebody wins and somebody loses. It happens. 
So <laughs> there are these three things that we have to differentiate. Imputation, mental labeling, and designation with words. What they share in common is that all of them involve something on a basis. The imputation of the game is on the basis of all these players running around. The imputation of a person is on the basis of all the aggregates changing all the time. But then there is the concept, the category of person. So I see all of these colored shapes in front of me. They're not just colored shapes. I have a category of persons. And I fit all of you into persons, that category. If I didn't fit you into the category of person, would I still be seeing people? Yes. I could have the category of Norwegians. I'm fitting you all into the category of Norwegians. Do I have to do that? No. And I could have various associations of the qualities of a Norwegian. And would I have to know the word Norwegian? No. But I'm still seeing people. And I'm not calling that rug on the floor a, a person. Am I? I hope not. <laughs> Yes. I find this very interesting. I'm not a very what? I find this very interesting. Mm -hmm. And thank you very much for the allegory. I'm not a football player. I don't like football. Uh, a ballet, was, ballet, a theater, a movie. Uh, I, was thinking of, I was thinking of the concept culture. Of a what? Culture. Concert, right. Because that is always, at least when you accept that culture is changing. Mm -hmm. Concert would be exactly the same. The culture, yeah. The word, no, the word culture. Culture? Yeah. A culture is always changing. It's a game. Right. A culture is also a, an imputation. Yeah, that, to me that may that may help me because we are, for example, having all these discussions of how you should behave, mm -hmm. and it is changing all the time. These days, there is a discussion in Norway of how to uh, shake, how to greet people. Mm -hmm. uh, you can, you have to have uh, to handshake, right? Even if you are a Muslim man to a, a woman. And then I remember when I was uh, a teacher, young teacher in the seventies. It was unfashionable to handshake because we were all equals. It was a bit bourgeois to handshake. Mm -hmm. And now it is suddenly, you know, you can be fired if you are not handshaking as a Muslim man and handshaking a woman. I find it very interesting. Right. I think that's a very good example is a culture. What is a culture? There are all these different ways in which people behave. Everything is happening at a different moment. There are many different people. Is there a culture? Yes. 
Is there the concept of a culture? So then we have a concept of what the culture should be. And that, of course, then we fit, you know, this doesn't fit into our culture. This is a different culture. It goes into a different box. And we have a word for it, culture. Same thing with personality. Personality is another good example of an, of an imputation. Isn't it? But there is a personality. It's not that there's no personality. It's quite tricky, not very easy to understand. Obviously, not very easy to understand. Otherwise, we would all be <laughs> uh, pretty good, well off. So you have two people <laughs> with question who has the three people with the question. So I'm not going to choose who's going to speak. So you uh, back there. <laughs> anyway, go on. Where does the word reification come in? The what? word the word reify, reification. Reify. Yeah. Where does it come into this? Uh, reify means uh, to make something a thing. So it's usually used in English for when we uh, fit things into a certain category. Let me go a little bit, uh, a little bit more complex. There is, yeah. Right, so reification, reification. We have a concept, uh, a concept of a um, culture. Use your word culture. We have a concept of a culture. There are two aspects here. One aspect is just conventionally culture or dog, or apple, or person, or whatever. Then there is one aspect of it which makes it into a thing, which projects it as a thing. In other words, that it has a big line around it. Use an example that's a little bit easier to understand. Loving love. Okay, you have love, you have loving somebody, liking somebody. Do I love you or do I like you? Well, there is an emotion that it's referring to. I mean, we have all these emotions, right? Now, we have these categories and words with the categories. 
So these categories are love and like. So those are conventions. People agree, we use them, functions. But when we make the, on top of that, to reify it means, when it's reified, it means also that it is uh, a box, that it's a thing. I'm looking for love. Really? What are you looking for? As if it were a thing. Right? That's encapsulated in plastic, wrapped, you know, there it is. Love, I found it. <laughs> so when we talk about the concept of love, the concept of love, well, there's only just different moments of different experience, isn't there? So there is the concept generally of love, but it is not a box, a thing. So reification means projecting that it's a thing. So does love refer to correspond to something? Yes. Does the thing aspect of it refer to anything? No. So two aspects in any with any category. This is the problem of conceptual of conceptualization is that it always comes together with this reification because the categories seem like boxes. And there's the definition in the dictionary. But conventionally, we need the concepts. Otherwise, we can't communicate with anybody. That's what it means. It's convention. We have to have words to communicate. Words, however, imply something there in the dictionary, you know, the big wrapped all together, you know, there, there it is. So it's not like that. But there are emotions. We feel something. Dog has emotions. So middle way, when you talk about middle way, madhyamaka means that, you know, not going to the extreme of nihilism, that nothing exists. You know, you're not feeling anything. Of course I'm feeling something. Or the other extreme was reification. Now I am feeling love, you know, I found it. And now, I, you know, I've taken it and now I feel it. Those are the two extremes. Nihilism and you can either call it eternalism, that's the literal translation, or absolutism. Different ways of referring to it. Other people had questions. I have the mic. <laughs> so, I'm sorry. She has I'll the talking stick. Yeah. Uh, can I just ask uh, one question? Okay. 
because when you, you were talking about throwing out the net, I'm, I'm the most miserable person right. in the world. Is that then I'm putting myself into that box? I was just wondering. That's that exactly what's happening. What's, when that the is exactly is what's happening. Yeah, that, was that we are putting ourselves into that box, uh, identifying me with just one feeling. So we've thrown out that net of me onto that, and we've reified it. The thing, poor me, I'm so miserable. And then that, you get the whole syndrome of the 12 links. Then we come, you know, I'm so miserable, I'm going to get drunk. So I forget, I'm going to shoot up heroin. Then the whole 12 links follows. I, um, I but still, I am experiencing unhappiness, so nothing special. It's risen from causes and conditions, and it will change. Yeah. Uh, it's a question regarding this concept of imputation. Yeah. Um, is, uh, um, is it right to say that imputations, they are uh, sort of um, conventionally agreed uh, abstract uh, well, our, things in a way. <laughs> our or, imputations, or, the, uh, like a person or a game, is that uh, conventionally agreed? Concept is conventionally agreed, and the word for it is conventionally agreed. Is this conventional truth, conventional reality? Now we get very tricky here. Very tricky. Conventional truth is how things uh, appear to exist, what appears to be true to a mind that is under the influence of this ignorance. Unawareness. So you can't find a person, you can't find, uh, you know, when you, you examine, can you find a person inside any of the aggregates? Can you find it outside of the aggregates? You can't find it. It appears to the mind that's under the influence of uh, ignorance, of the grasping for true existence and habits of that, and gets very complex. It appears to be, to exist in this impossible way. And you take it as true. So you have to differentiate uh, conventional reality Mere convention, mere conventionalities, I think that's the, the way that I translate it. There's a difference between conventional, conventional truth or conventionally true phenomenon and mere conventionalities. I don't know if you understand these words in English. Uh, conventional truth, it appears to be solidly there. 
It's not. It doesn't correspond to how things exist. Things are mere conventionalities. In other words, when we examine and try to find the person or try to find love or try to find, you know, anything, the rug, you get down to the atoms, you get down to the, you know, subatomic particles, you can't find it. Nevertheless, when you are not analyzing, then there's the mere conventionality. Merely, mere conventionality thing that functions. So what's very important is to understand that uh, voidness and dependent arising are like two sides of the coin. This is the fact that things don't... Voidness means that there is a total absence of anything corresponding to my fantasy. So, for instance, you and me, my fantasy is that we are like two ping pong balls. There's you over there and there's me over here. That doesn't correspond to reality. Because if it did, we couldn't relate to each other. We couldn't communicate. So the other side of that is that we are dependently arising phenomenon. In other words, there's no plastic wrapper around me or plastic wrapper around you. There are all these aggregates that are changing all the time. There's all these aggregates that are changing over there. Where you are, there's the air, there's the, all the elements of this building, air that's carrying sound and so on, and the communication arises dependently on all these parts functioning. So the fact that because things don't exist wrapped in plastic, things function. So the understanding of voidness by itself is incomplete. You only fully have understood Buddha's teachings when you understand the um, harmony between voidness and dependent arising. This is clear in the Buddha's sutras. Things arise dependently on causes, conditions, parts, and mental labeling. So then what does mental labeling mean? So you can only establish that you are a person because there is the concept, there's the category and word person and they refer to something. There's no label in an emotion that says it's love. Is there? No little tag. There's no little tag. I mean, maybe somebody sewed a name tag on the back of your shirt. But <laughs> there's nothing inside you that 
establishes you as, what's your name? Katrinka. 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 Which I can't pronounce, Katrinka. What establishes you as Katrinka? Well, the name establishes you. And the category, you know, that every time, <laughs> I mean, it's really wonderful when you think about it. Uh, you, should, you need to have a series of photographs of yourself from when you were a baby up until now. They all look very different. How can we say they're all me? What makes them all me? It's a very, very interesting thing to contemplate. What makes them all me? What is recognizable in it that I recognize all as me? <laughs> Are they all photographs of me? Yes, they're not photographs of somebody else. But there's nothing on the side of the photograph that you can point to the nose or, I mean, what? So it is, you know, but there is the, I have, it is me, but I can only establish it, prove that it's me. What makes it, you know, me, Katrinka, is, well, is the name and the concept that this is all me. So it doesn't make me, me, but it is how I establish or prove to myself that it is me, because I have this concept. Now that's very, very subtle. Very, very subtle. What establishes that there's such a thing as love? is that there's a concept of love. Somebody, I mean, think about how do these things come about? Do animals experience love? Yes. But how did we get this concept of love? You know, everybody was experiencing something else. You know, try to imagine how cave people got together and decided that this common experience is going to be, you know, a specific emotion. And we're going to give a name to it. How in the world did that happen? Hostility, anger, you know, these very fine divisions. They are established by some category that somebody gave, then gave a word to. A group of people, you know, agreed. That's called a convention. They agreed. But is it referring to something? Yes, because we feel things. But they don't exist in boxes. That now there's this box of, you know, love in my head, and now that experience comes out of that box. And now there's a box of liking someone and it comes out of that box. That's reification. That they exist in boxes. That I exist in a box. 
and I have to have my way, and everybody has to pay attention to me. And how I feel is so important, I have to post it on Facebook and let the whole world know. I have to make a, tw a Twitter thing of how I feel because I'm so important. Everybody really is interested to know what I had for breakfast today. And then if we don't get enough likes, we're unhappy. 12 links. You know, I mean, it's, that is what causes our uncontrollably recurring rebirth. It's that ignorance about ourselves and others. So we have to try to understand that that doesn't correspond to reality. So you need to make a difference, a differentiation between, again, two words. Me, that refers to someone. This is what I was trying to differentiate when I spoke about two aspects of a concept. Me, Katrinka, refers to someone, but, you know, some fixed person, Katrinka, doesn't correspond to reality. Katrinka is always like that. She always does this. She always does that. And then all sorts of judgments. And even the judgments. Nice. The nice person. What is nice? Some group of cave people got together and decided <laughs> what nice was, and they gave a word to it. A meaningless sound. They assigned that meaningless sound as a word. That's how it happened, isn't it? It's quite amazing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you have the microphone. I have a question about uh, karma. Yeah. At times I uh, stay at the retreat center Shedrupling, and it was a pleasure that you uh, visited the place uh, last year. Mm -hmm. These days it's uh, difficult to meditate there because of the shootings. Because of the what? Shootings. Shootings? Yes. Hunting. Yesterday there was a shootout with a moose, and uh -huh. the moose lost. There was... Uh, Vehicles, ATV, small vehicles, four-wheel drive, and uh, dogs, and a party of hunters that uh, drove the moose in front of them and then shot it by the retreat center by the road. Uh -huh. And uh, I find it uh, difficult to uh, maintain impartial in this when there's uh, shootings and uh, killing at the retreat centers. My question is about karma, how to relate to karma for... Uh, for uh, what kind of karma does this create? Are you asking what kind of karma does it, uh, uh, karmic, are you asking in terms of the hunters, or are you asking in terms of you, or asking in terms of the moose? I am asking for uh, myself. For yourself? Yes. If you, you get angry with that, 
then and shout at the, you know, I mean, there's a difference between anger. Anger is a mental factor, right? It's an emotion. It's not karma. Karma is referring to that compelling impulse based on the anger, which would draw you into yelling at the hunters, throwing a rock at them, shooting them, or just thinking really nasty thoughts about them. So those would be, you know, if you have those karmic impulses that immediately lead you into acting or speaking or thinking like that, then that will have karmic aftermath. So you've built up negative potential from that. So there's a difference between merely discriminating that this is terrible, what they did, and feeling sad about it for the moose and sad about it for the hunters, you know, what you know, karma they're building up, and getting angry. And then based on that anger, yelling at them. You might tell them, you know, no shooting here. I mean, you might speak to them, but there's a difference between speaking calmly and speaking with anger. When you speak with anger, then disturbing emotion, you lose peace of mind and you lose self-control. You say all sorts of things that are not very helpful. If you can keep calm and not speak out of anger, then, you know, better able to handle a situation. I mean, if they are legally allowed to shoot there, there's not much that you can do. As I perceived it, it's uh, not legal. They shot by a road by the retreat center. The shots were fired across to the access of our retreat center, and I phoned the police. They said they would investigate. Good. And uh, I wanted to make the... Ani Konshug is having a course there next uh, weekend, and uh, I think the situation is terrible, that uh, you might have to change your clothes to something not ordained, but fluorescent, so there's no uh, shots uh, as we approach the retreat center. And uh, I was very upset by it. So the police said they would investigate. Uh, previously, uh, not much has come from it. But uh, I feel that uh, I can formulate as a question. Uh, what kind of karma is it at our retreat center that there are being shot, shots are fired there and there are killings at the retreat center? Well, a retreat center doesn't have karma. Only people experience karma. So what one experiences, I mean, <laughs> the fact that shooting animals occurs at the retreat center arises dependently on causes and conditions, not karmic conditions, not karmic causes. So the fact that it is in the woods, the fact that it is in Norway, and the fact that there are animals, and the fact that there are hunters, and the fact that uh, there's no electrified fence around your center that would keep the hunters away, you know, dependent on all of that and the um, 
mentality of the hunters, it arises that there are animals getting shot on your property. Now, if you talk about karma, karma has to, karmic, uh, um, the ripening of karma, the aftermath of karma, it would be, you know, whoever it was choosing that particular location for the retreat center. Why is it that they chose a place where there's hunting for a retreat center? So that's a karmic ripening. You see, you have to differentiate you know, what's happening on the side of people and what's happening on the side of a piece of property. And then why you choose to hold courses during hunting season in the retreat center. That also, you know, you don't have to have a, a retreat there if you know that there's going to be hunting. But for some karmic reason, you guys have chosen to have a retreat then. It's like that, isn't it? That's karmic. Yeah. Could we uh, have another try for the imputations? Another try meaning to uh, contemplate it or another ex repetition of the, another way of explaining it? Yes, another yes. way of explaining it. Another way of explaining it. I am, um, after the latest uh, explanation, I got a feeling that the imputation uh, might be something of an idea or perhaps an event, an instance? Well, I was trying to differentiate the idea of a game from the actual game. Yeah. So it's not an idea. We're, we're differentiating those two. The idea of a person and an actual person, those are different. So Aren't they? I lost it again. I mean, what is, if I have an idea of uh, a friend, and I define that friend as, you know, let's say, the partner, perfect partner, it's a better example, and I imagine that partner, I mean, no. I have this idea of a partner, what a partner should be, what a friend should be. Remember, we have this word, should. And then we have a friend or a partner, and we look at them through that idea of what a partner or a friend should be, and they don't live up to it, and then we get very angry with them. 
So this is a big problem with these ideas or concepts because what comes together with them is that there's this box which is fixed with all its characteristics and they have to fit into that box which of course makes a problem. However, are they a friend? Yes. Are they my partner? Yes. What establishes them as my friend or my partner? Well, because we've agreed that there's a certain thing called a partner and there's a certain thing called a friend. So by convention. So friend refers to this person, but this idea of the ideal friend, the ideal partner, that doesn't correspond to anything. You know, that's the prince or princess on the white horse. Well, this is the, I mean, that one needs to differentiate these two. Our ideas, our concepts, these categories, which are fixed. It's a problem. They're fixed, like boxes. And we try to, like, you know, what I should be. I'm not good enough. We have this box, this concept of me, of how I should be. And then we don't fit into that. And then we get angry with ourselves. I'm no good. Doesn't mean we don't have intentions to improve. We do. But without these boxes, the boxes have a useful function because it allows us to talk, to communicate to others. So they're not totally useless. But the problem with them is that it implies that things exist like it is in the dictionary. Or like, you know, it's fixed. So it's another technical term. The implied object doesn't exist. But there are no imputations hiding there. Pardon? There are no imputations hiding there. Hiding this? Hiding. Uh, the way that the imputation appears to us hides that. It appears to me that you are a friend, right? So this is a, uh, maybe friend isn't a good, a good example. Um, the football game. There's a football game happening, right? So that's an imputation. But how it appears to us because of our, the habits of ignorance, habits of so-called grasping for true, truly established existence. Because of that habit, our mind makes it appear as though you know, 
solid game, and this is a terrible game. My team is losing, and we get really upset about it. So it appears as though it's a terrible game. Is it a game? Yes. Is it happening? Yes. But how it appears to me, you know, this is the most exciting thing in the world. It's the World Cup, and, you know, you, you go crazy. It's just a bunch of people running around in a field kicking a ball. That's all it is. And is it a game? Yes, conventionally we call that a game. Somebody coming from another planet looking at it, I mean, what, what are these people doing? You know? They don't have a concept of a game. I think I can manage the concept of the game, even though I know nothing about football. Well, uh, it's a ballet, a concert. I can't manage. Um, you know, it's the same thing. What is a concert? There are all the, you know, all these people playing instruments, and they're playing something different every moment. I went to the concert. I listened to the concert. Did you listen to something? Yes. Wasn't not, that nothing took place, that you didn't hear anything? But what is a concert? And then this is a terrible concert. This is a great concert. This is the most important thing in the world. Oh, I'm so sad. I missed the concert. We make it into such a big deal, as if it were a thing. That's this reification. And me, I missed it. So important. But where, where, where's the imputation? The imputation is the concert. That's an imputation. It is an imputed phenomenon, an imputational phenomenon. It is a phenomenon. What type of phenomenon is it? It's the, the phenomenon called an imputation. It is neither a form of physical phenomenon the concert is not the actual sounds of the instrument. It's not a uh, um, way of being aware of something. It's not the hearing of it. It's something that is neither, but nevertheless changes from moment to moment. Concert changed from moment to moment to moment. Don't expect this to be easy, and don't expect to understand it instantly. These are very profound points in the Dharma that require a tremendous amount of meditation. And as I explained before, when we get stuck in trying to understand something, we need to open our minds more, which you do by doing positive things, so-called building up merit, which is a terrible way of talking about it. Build up more positive force. It's not that you have to do something to earn it. Now I deserve it. 
but uh, by thinking more of others, by getting outside of me and I don't understand, then it becomes easier to understand. It's very important to realize that when we, when we get stuck, then we will get stuck. Nobody said it was easy. Yeah. I have a question concerning uh, the building up of or the karma ripening. When uh, when uh, we are trying to to break a bad habit, for instance, it's uh, like almost you feel the impulse to throw out the net. Right. Or uh, and and then you kind of see yourself, you know, in the process, mm. and then maybe. You, you st- the negative thoughts come, but then you realize and you kind of stop it so you don't go to further action. Mm-hmm. So will, will it be a negative building up of karma if you, you still have some negativity coming up, something that's kind of... But then you manage to open up again and you kind of see what's happening and you maybe do some uh, compassion or... How 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 will that? Uh, because I mean, we have to. Uh, right, there is. What is the first thing that happens uh, when we are are trying to break the habit? Let's say of smoking. First, what happens is that you feel like having a cigarette. That's the arising of a wish, the desire. That's the first thing. That arises from the uh, tendency to want a cigarette, from desire, from habit of that. So what we try to do when we work with karma is to recognize that there is a space between when I feel like having a cigarette and when this compelling impulse is there with which I actually grab the cigarette and light it, I feel like yelling at you, but there's a space between that and when I actually yell. So it's in that space. You know, the, to feel like wanting to do that, that's not necessarily negative. You know, I mean, it's coming from habit. What's negative is when you act on it. So in that space in between, we try to develop what's called discriminating awareness. Sometimes translated as wisdom, but that's too vague. To discriminate between will it be helpful or harmful to actually take the cigarette. And then, based on Understanding, or simply based on self-control, we stop. We don't take it. So then there can be a motivation. It's just simply self-control. This is you know, going to harm me. Or I'm with my baby. It's going to harm the baby if I smoke in front of the baby. You know, there are different types of Motivation. It's against the law to smoke inside this train. 
so there's different motivations, but uh, we need to make that space between when you feel like doing something and that compelling impulse with which we actually do it. And often that compulsion is so strong that uh, we act immediately upon what you feel. You know, so you say anything that comes to your, to your head. But for instance, if you then, you, you are compelled to say something aggressively and the anger is coming up and you have that space and you, you don't do it, you kind of, okay, anger is here and you try to, you know, do something in that space to calm your mind. Mm -hmm. Will that aggress like that aggressive feeling will then that build up a negative karma or well, have it's you aggressive thinking. It? Yeah, it is. Remember, there are three types of uh, behavior: physically doing something, verbally saying something, or thinking something. Mm. So thinking, again, doesn't have to be verbal. You know, you know that's thinking. <laughs> you don't have to say, you know, in your head, this terrible person, and I'm going to, you know, yell at them. So even if you stop, you have created a negative So karma. that negative thinking, thinking to cause harm, to yell at this person, and so on, that is a destructive action of the mind that builds up karmic afterpath. I mean, you can think, think about the, a good example is worrying. Worrying? Worrying. Worry, I mean, what a habit that becomes. That's such a strong habit, and the more that you worry, but I'm thinking it becomes even you, stronger. But I think that when you kind of realize that you, you are in there, and you kind of, you don't, you, you realize that, okay, this aggressive thought came up, you don't put it out there, and you also kind of see it, and then you do something to kind yes, of... Yes, absolutely. So absolutely. Have you then kind of done some cleansing, that kind of... Still, you've had the negative thought. What we try to do is to catch... I mean, if you start to have these negative thoughts. The first step, of course, is not to let it lead to actually implementing them, of actually yelling at the person. So then you try to stop that negative train of thought sooner and sooner and sooner. But still, that negative thinking, even for a short time, is still a destructive emotion. I mean, a destructive action of thought. You try to get it less and less and less. And then you apply some sort of opponent. So, you know, you start to think with compassion toward the person. But they're acting like that because of confusion. So then you oppose it. Counteract it. That lessens the force of the karmic aftermath. No, no. Could you just say a few words in terms of creation and completion practices? How the 12 links, is there any, you talked about putting the pieces of the puzzle together. When I'm doing, for example, Nundro, Mandala practice, is there something I should reflect on in this teaching? Those are two different things. You're talking about the generation stage and complete stage in 
highest class of Tantra, or are you talking about Nundra? What are you talking about? For me, Nundra. Be easier to answer your question if it were the generation and complete but, but, stage. But, but aren't they? But uh, is Nundra? Well, when we're doing Nundra, let's say we're doing the prostrations. Uh, Our knees are going to hurt. We're going to get tired. Going to not feel like doing it. Nothing special. Just do it anyway. To do it with uh, negative thoughts certainly makes it uh, not very effective. So when we are having uh, negative thoughts, about uh, what we're doing, then stop the practice and work on getting rid of the negative thought before you continue. I think that's important. Are we going to experience doing all these prostrations with great happiness and joy? Most of us won't. So what? If we really try to set the intention and motivation beforehand that I'm doing this in order to be able to build up more positive neural pathways if you want to be a scientist about it. Think about it. You know, beginning this life, how deeply embedded our habits, our neural pathways are. In order to build up a more positive neural pathway or habit, that requires a tremendous amount of repetition, doesn't it? If we have repeatedly been, you know, miserly and, you know, not given anything and you know, can't be bothered and all this stuff, you know, zillions of times in the past. Then to build up that attitude of you know, offering a mandala, offering everything to, in order to be able to help everybody, of course you have to repeat it 100,000 times. You have to repeat it many more times than that in order to build up you know, a different automatic response, a different neural pathway. So if we understand what we're doing and why we're doing it, then we can minimize that danger of uh, you know, not liking what we're doing. Remember, contacting awareness comes before feeling happy and unhappy. Do we find doing prostrations pleasant or unpleasant? Well, it depends on our attitude, doesn't it? There's nothing inherent in it that makes it pleasant or unpleasant. And even if it's painful, we can experience that pain with happiness. That happens when you are you know, doing training with weightlifting or any sport. You know, your body really aches at the end of it, and you're happy about that because you know that that's making progress. 
So first link in terms of uh, ignorance, you know, don't grasp at this whole thing of me, I'm doing my ngundra, I'm so wonderful, you know, I'm so advanced, and everything is going to be perfect when I, you know, do the 100,000, then, you know, all my problems will go away. I mean, all of this is nonsense. But when we think in terms of, you know, me, 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 who's doing this prostration, or poor me, I have to do this, you know, my knees hurt, etc., then the whole sequence of the 12 links follows. So it's the attitude that we have about me doing the, the, the nundro and about our feelings, you know, and experience while we're doing it that uh, really is uh, crucial in terms of uh, making it a more positive type of action. And not easy. I mean, this is why Mundro is uh, not really for, you know, total beginners. Because you could build up quite negative habits in terms of really resenting that I have to do this and really, you know, poor me or I'm so holy, holy that, uh, you know, not so helpful. One needs to, as I said before, a certain level of maturity to... Uh, uh, practice the Dharma, a certain level of emotional stability, and a certain understanding of what we're doing and why. And it needs to be sincere. Then Gunjo is wonderful. And be realistic about it which is that it is going to be difficult and it's going to be painful and it's going to, you know, not be pleasant at times. And then so what? I know it's beneficial. It doesn't matter that it's, my knees hurt, so what? Yeah, I wonder if it's correct to think, to say that the self uh, is an imputation of the aggregates. On the aggregates. On the aggregates. Right. Thank you. The self is an imputation on the aggregates, but the self isn't some solid thing that comes from out there and is imputed on the aggregates. That also is incorrect. So don't make the self into some you know, ping-pong ball that comes and instead of inhabiting the aggregates and using them, just sits on top of them as an imputation. That also is a misconception. That has to be deconstructed as well. So the whole process of understanding voidness is a process of deconstruction.
and one has to be careful not to deconstruct too much so that you're left with nothing or not to deconstruct too little. You're still left with uh, something that uh, identifying with it that you know you think corresponds to reality, which doesn't. Like this ping pong ball, me that now is sitting on top of the aggregates as an imputation. That's not refuting enough. Yes, um, I was very happy initially when you said that you chose not to use the word ignorance, but mm -hmm. uh, unknowing or not knowing right. in, uh, regarding the first link. That's uh, literally what the word is in Sanskrit right. and Tibetan. Because for me that uh, leaves room for more compassion. Exactly. Um, and this sort of... Um, I've been thinking uh, that this, you, you call it like a hologram or, you know, whatever happens, we, we observe, we experience uh, with our senses. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've been thinking... With our thoughts as well and our imagination right. as well. Right, so mind also as a, yeah. an aspect. But uh, the how this meets, and I've been thinking if things were a bit otherwise, like uh, you would actually bump into an object but you would see the object elsewhere if you understand what i'm saying like if if the if there was like an offsetting between the senses then we wouldn't be as easily fooled uh, but the senses as they work they, they they work like okay you see the object and the object you touch it right where you see it uh, if, if you drop a glass and it uh, smashes you don't hear it at the end of the back of the room, but you hear it exactly where it lands, right? So we, all this this um, makes the whole thing very believable. Do, do you catch my drift on this uh, well, thought I think experiment? That, you know, just because what we, how we experience something, I mean, the way that it is described is this word, an aspect. We experience an aspect of the object. So aspect doesn't really convey very much. So I, you know, thinking about it, it's like a mental hologram. The uh, dish drops, or we touch something. No, there is an actual contact. I mean, this is happening of the hand and uh, the object. However, what do we experience? You know, because of that contact, the electric impulses, you know, through the sensitive parts of the skin go through the neural, you know, the whole neurons and so on and go to the brain. And it is, there's a mental hologram of a physical sensation. So uh, just because we experience what you experience is a mental hologram doesn't mean that you are not... I mean, what arises in the mental activity... See, all of this comes back... I'm not explaining, not saying this very nicely. What is mind? Mind is not a thing. It's talking about mental activity. 
the activity that is going on in each moment. And in that activity that's going on in each moment is the arising of some hologram, and that is what it means, some cognitive engagement. To, be, to have a cognitive engagement of seeing, hearing, thinking, and all the mental factors of liking, not liking, happy, and so on. There is that, what it means is there's a rising of a hologram of that. What you've seen. So, they talk about, you know, the object and the consciousness and all the mental factors coming from one seed. You know, this Chittamatra thing, mind only. It's just talking that they're non-dual. Well, right. I mean, it's, it's one phenomenon that's happening like that. That doesn't negate that, uh, you know, there's actual external things physically happening. doesn't mean that you only exist in my head, but what I experience is a mental hologram of what you look like. And as an imputation on that, there's a person, and there's a name. So this way of describing the mental activity, we're just talking about what do you experience? What's actually happening? So that mental hologram that arises, again, you know, the different theories, you know, is it just coming from, I mean, in a sense, it's coming from the karma, but also, you know, is it, you know, this is the whole discussion with uh, Chittamatra and Madhyamaka, is it also arising dependent on the external phenomenon? I don't want to go too deeply into Chittamatra and Madhyamaka, but uh, that gets very complex. But just because what we experience, how we experience it is like a mental hologram, which you'd have to say is the case um, even scientifically. You know, in terms of what's happening with the brain, imagining seeing something and actually seeing something that you can't differentiate those two. It's the same thing. There's the rising of a mental hologram. It's just a matter of is it in focus or not. When you imagine. And that's what thinking is. That's what seeing is. So what are the causal factors? How much of it is coming from karma? How much of it is coming from the external phenomenon. And then that's the the debate with the uh, different tenant systems. Okay. Somebody else had a question? Um, I think it's almost time out. (laughs) uh, So um, the more you see imputation as imputation and not as reality, that's kind of the progress here. Is it? Could you well, say it what like we that? want to understand in terms of the self is an imputation, but also that whether it's an imputation or the basis for imputation, none of them are you 
self-established. I can introduce another term. Uh, how does the self exist? No, how does the self not exist? The most basic, basic thing is that it uh, does not exist as something, this is what the non-Buddhist uh, Indian schools would say, that's something that is static, which means it never changes, it's not affected by anything else, it has no parts, and it can exist independently of the basis. The football game, as if it was just one thing, it didn't change from moment to moment during the game, that it didn't have any parts, so it had nothing to do with all the players and all of that, and it somehow existed separately from what happened. Oh, it's a great game. I went to see the game. Okay. And then, so that's the first thing that you, that you refute. The next thing is that it is, can be known by itself. Even if it's an imputation, that it can be known by itself without some aspect of the basis also appear, being known. What's your name? Margit, that I can know Margit. I'm talking to Margit. Margit. Hmm? Margit. 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 No G. Margit. I have no idea. Whatever your name is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't hear it well enough to pronounce it. Uh, that I'm just seeing Margit. I'm not just seeing Margit. But, but automatically, I think that I'm seeing her. I can't see her without seeing her body. You can't be just talking to somebody on the phone. I mean, you're, this, uh, this is uh, Marguerite on the phone. Who's that Marguerite on the There's a sound. And <laughs> the imputation on the sound is, is it's Marguerite. So that's the next level that you refute. And then there are many more subtle levels than that. But uh, the subtlest is that it's self-established. That it is established that there is something inside you that makes you you by its own power, independently of anything else. So there's something inside this emotion that makes it love. independently of a concept of love and a definition that somebody made up in the dictionary. So that is the case with everything. So these various aggregates, there's love, there's attention, there's, you know, all of these sort of things, happiness, unhappiness, what in the world is that? If you think about this moment of experience, I mean, is it made up of these little balls, you know, these little things, you know, of all these aggregates? Well, not really. I mean, you just experience it. If we wanted to analyze it, 
then you could analyze it with all these different parts and so on. And we have, you know, and are the, all these parts, you know, present? Are they operating? Well, yes, there's emotion, there's attention, there's concentration, there's things like that. When we don't examine, when you don't analyze, it's all happening. But when you try to look for all these little pieces, you can't find them. So it seems as though it's self-established. I have terrible concentration. I have terrible anger. I have so much love. You know, as if there, that, that there was something there inside, you know, this ping-pong ball of love or attention or concentration that makes it by its own power love, independently of the concept of love and the word love. That doesn't correspond to reality. There's something inside me that makes me me. Is there something inside all these pictures spanning my life that make it me? What? What? You can't find anything. It's like that. Anyway, it's lunchtime. So I think whatever understanding, whatever positive forces come from this, may go deeper and deeper and act as a cause to, for everyone to reach the enlightened state of a Buddha for the benefit of us all. And don't get frustrated. You know, these things are not easy to understand. And even if you understand them, it's not easy to accept that they are actually true in terms of me. There's still me. But, you know, you don't, I mean, in the context of this uh, 12 links, don't identify with any of the, of the parts, the things that are happening. You know, in terms of the feelings, in terms of, you know, what's experience, you know what you're experiencing. Identifying means identify some ping pong ball me with that. And then stuck with that. And forget about everything else, all the other aggregates and everything over your whole lifetime. That's the problem. Am I sick now? Yes, I may be sick now. That doesn't mean I've always been sick. And there are many other things that are happening besides being sick. And what is sick? The concept of sick. Actually, there's just feelings and a running nose. and a, 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 What? We call that being sick. Somebody assigned, you know, these meaningless sound, sick, and said that, you know, had a concept of what it is. Bam, you know, now, now I'm sick, me. So, I mean, the, 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 you know, the more you work with this, the more you see how, you know, completely widespread it is. And it's not just, you know, me and you. I mean, that's the context of the 12 links, because it needs to be um, acceptable to the Theravada and the Hinayana tenet systems as well. But from the Madhyamaka point of view, then it's, it's everything. We have ignorance about everything, about how everything exists. 
the aggregates. But there's something inside them that allows us. There's something in one of the aggregates that is the defining characteristic for me. And usually they say that, you know, it's in consciousness, but even that is not the case. Where? Can't find that either. Is there a defining characteristic? Well, yes, I can distinguish you from the person next to you. But that's just, you know, when you don't examine, you know, analyze. If you analyze, you can't find the defining characteristic. But there is a defining characteristic, otherwise you couldn't differentiate one thing from another. You couldn't live. So these are the things that one needs to think about, to work with. And it requires a great deal of familiarity. Not something that you get just like that. It requires patience and building up positive force, opening your mind more. Which you do by working for others. Okay?